Hello, good evening, everybody. Welcome to this first edition of the Cosumits meeting. Uh, this is a new concept we are creating with Cosurabit. Uh, the concept is to meet people from the gaming industry who will talk, be talking about mostly uh, the journey into this ecosystem and the industry, uh, what they've done. They will also uh, be talking about um, three or four uh, big actuality, giving their opinion of what's happening in industry right now, what are the big news. Uh, tonight, it would be mostly about Activision and, and Microsoft and the, the, the issue that Microsoft is facing. Uh, Web3 and GameFi, what is their stand about NFT, play to earn, those kind of games, and then uh, influence marketing in 2023. Then they will talk about one of their best experiences in, ga in gaming, more, more through a game or through an event or something they had to live within the gaming uh, space. Fourth part and last part would be about talking about the different challenges they can be they have they are facing right now, and then we will have maybe or maybe not depending on the time uh, a Q and A session with the chat. Uh, so first I will let the the guests. Um, present themselves. Uh, Julien, if you want to start. Sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for inviting me uh, today, tonight. My name is uh, Julian Vera. I'm, uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of a brand new studio, a game development studio based in Stockholm in Sweden uh, called Moonora Games. I've been working in the games industry for I want to say 16 years, maybe 17, because I can't count. Um, and at various, you know, kind of uh, roles across these years. I, I started in the very, very early days of the free-to-play MMO uh, business back when I was, uh, you know, handling community management and, and you know, PR and marketing. And my main job was to explain what free-to-play was the first uh, kind of few PC free-to-play games uh, coming online. And from there, I had the chance to work in, uh, in community PR and marketing with some fantastic teams and on fantastic games um, from the, the the early MMOs that I worked on, like uh, Fly for Fun, which is always will, will always have a really special place in my heart because it's the first game I got to work on to uh, the original Plants vs. Zombies. Um, 
helping uh, Riot Games uh, with the launch of, of League of Legends in, in Europe um, and uh, working on, on many other games before I found my way into uh, more the production and development side of things, still working on a kind of branding and marketing side of things, but at, uh, at studio in development teams, moving from Ireland where I used to live to uh, Sweden, where I still live, uh, to join the uh, Massive studio, Ubisoft Massive, at the very, very early days uh, working on the division. Um, had the chance to work with the Nadio team as well on the Trackmania franchise and Shootmania there. Uh, before I got lured away to, to the capital of Sweden, I uh, joined DICE, where I eventually became the uh, the brand director for the Battlefield and Mirror's Edge franchises, working with the studio on you know, amazing games as well, like uh, Mirror's Edge Catalyst, Battlefield 1, Battlefield 4, uh, and many others. Um, many things since those days, uh, still I, I had, uh, I was able to go on the strategy side of things, working for a few years uh, and managing the portfolio at Paradox Interactive on games like Crusader Kings, Stellaris, City Skylines, um, and, you know, uh, a few other adventures. And earlier this year, uh, myself and some fantastic people, friends and colleagues that I've had the chance to work with in the past uh, on, on some of the games that I mentioned, um, we decided to, you know, just take the jump, take the leap of faith and start our own studio. Uh, so in January of this year, we started Moon Order Games with the ambition to take um, what we've learned from from many of those games, from the you know the the system driven rock paper uh, scissors kind of game design of Battlefield, our uh, creative director Jamie Keane uh, was the lead designer on Far Cry Three, and so worked a lot on kind of the definition of the Far Cry uh, living world, and so we've decided to kind of take all of these system driven um, experiences and bringing them into uh, a cooperative, uh, an ambitious cooperative game that we're working on. So we're just at the very beginning of the, the journey, the, the, the startup journey of a new game studio. Um, so it's uh, exciting and uh, interesting, which are two words that are often used for difficult and stressful, but you know, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's, it's really fun. And be, I, I feel like, you know, everything that I've had the, the chance to do in my past career had, had led me there basically. That's great. Thank you very much, Julien. Uh, as you may have heard from me a bit from Julien, but I think you will hear it also from Robin. We are three French guys talking in English. <laughs> so please. Uh, our English seems to be really, really good. And I know Robin for a long time. I know his English is good too. But for the first edition, I had to invite people I know because it was easier and I know a lot of French people from the industry. Uh, I would let, I will let you introduce yourself, Robin. Thanks. So I'm going to try to do the best I can with my accent. To, <laughs> you know, not, not let people know that I'm French, but uh, I am French. I'm blurry as well. I'm French. Uh, I'm based in Paris and yeah, my name is Robin. Uh, I work at Ubisoft currently. It's been a bit more than a year now. At, uh, I'm at Ubisoft before that. I started my career in a strategy consulting firm and then moved to marketing agencies, working on branding and 360 marketing campaigns and activations. 
uh, with a small focus on influence for marketing at the time, which was uh, you know, starting. It wasn't really a thing back then, influence on marketing, it was a bit of the wild west. Uh, and I always wanted to work in entertainment, but at the time I was, I was working mostly with FMCG brands like uh, Ferrero, Water World, with Nutella, Kinder Bueno, those kind of guys. Uh, and I met with Romain, I think it was like, what, four years ago now that we met? Yeah. Uh, starting uh, thinking of projects that we could do together, trying to bridge the gaming and esports world with traditional FMCG brands. Uh, a lot of those brands were interested in gaming and they were approaching us and asking us if we could do something to help them, if we could help them you know, sponsor teams or sponsor esports events, that kind of stuff. And this is how I met with Ghost Rabbits. And we started thinking about projects that we could do together. And one thing led to another, and we started working together, actually. <laughs> uh, at the very beginning of Ghost Rabbits, uh, for the small story of us venting about uh, my, cur my current job at the time, and uh, it was not going so well. And uh, as a French person, I uh, called Roman to vent and to, you know, like I need to let the pressure off. And uh, Roman said, hey, well, actually, I uh, were creating this company with Nick, and uh, we are looking for someone to, you know, help us grow the company. Would you be interested? And so this is how I started my journey into gaming. I'm so blessed to uh, have had this opportunity and have uh, helped. Nick and Roma uh, create Gosso Habit uh, for almost two years. And then I joined Ubisoft. And now I'm working as a global content creator uh, strategist at uh, Ubisoft Publishing in Paris, in Saint Monday, but it's in Paris. Uh, and basically, what I'm working on right now at Ubisoft is two things. First, I'm handling a portfolio of games uh, in terms of what is their content creator strategy, who, uh, who, what are the type of targets that we're talking to, who are the best content creators that we want for this uh, specific game, uh, both mainstream and uh, gaming content creators, uh, what is going to be our strategy, our budget, etc. So I'm handling a handful of games, uh, mostly you know free to play, uh, long tail clan games like the Division, uh, Rainbow Six. I'm working on uh, also upcoming games such as Code Bones, for instance, uh, and also Undisclosed Projects. And the other project that I'm working on uh, at Ubisoft is the Ubisoft Creative Program, uh, which is something new that we released last year as a beta, which is a program that is uh, at the disposal of all the content creators, and it's aiming at uh, helping us engage with more content creators, uh, more diverse, in terms of who they are, what type, what type of content do they do, um, and also their audience. So we're not restricting ourselves to you know like people with hundreds or thousands of uh, viewers, but we are opening the gates, uh, Ubisoft gates, to uh, content creators that have maybe 50, 100 uh, viewers on Twitch, or you know like a couple thousand views on YouTube, and they're just trying to make a career out of. Uh, streaming or creating content. And the idea is to give them the opportunity to engage with us early in their career and in their journey, give them the opportunities that they don't often have, like you know, already accesses, beta keys, uh, those kind of stuff like Twitch drops, uh, and invite them into the uh, Ubisoft partner program, basically. 
and helping them grow. Uh, so we're also trying to create content to help them, you know, like, ha, how do I create good content? How do I use uh, like Streamlabs or that kind of stuff? How do I use like uh, you know, all the, the lighting? How do I create engaging content? Uh, and we're putting all that at the disposal of those creators. So that they not only have opportunities and rewards, but they also have uh, the help of us as a company and other creators as a community to uh, grow as creators. So this is me in a nutshell. I'm also working on other projects on my free time. Um, I'm helping uh, putting together some uh, like non-profit events uh, like uh, Spidon, which is the French equivalent of the AGDQ uh, that we put together for three years now. Uh, I mean, it was fourth year this year, and we raised about a bit more than 1 million euros this year for uh, Doctors of the World. We're also working with a French association called the Secours Populaire, uh, which is one of the biggest associations in France, helping them engage with the you know, gaming and Twitch audience and uh, helping them uh, just promote what they do and help get, get people to engage themselves into the association uh, on Twitch. And this is something that I really enjoy doing. Uh, it's really fun and also really exciting to help those associations or nonprofits to get better known, uh, especially to an audience that's you know it's difficult to engage with. It's just difficult to touch uh, those Gen Z millennials uh, that we are a part of, and that don't necessarily watch the news. They don't necessarily like read traditional newspapers. So when you're uh, as big as of an entity as they are, and also as old as some of them are, because some of them are like 150 years old, how do you do to revamp your communication to be more appealing and to you know to just touch this audience? And this is what we're trying to do uh, with Pidon, but also with other events. Thank you very much, Robin. Well, nice introduction for, from both of you. Uh, we will switch to part two. So the part two is basically talking about big news or big topics in the industry right now. And I will start with the first one. Uh, for those who don't know, I think it was early last year, uh, Microsoft announced that they wanted to buy out Activision Blizzard King. Uh, it, it's one as a project because it's not done yet. Uh, it's the biggest buyouts of the industry ever for $64 billion. Uh, Activision Blizzard King being uh, present on console, PC, and mobile, and Microsoft console, PC, uh, not that much on mobile, but also cloud gaming. Uh, after a year, the CMA, so the the, uh, the competition, uh, well, the un an antitrust organization in the UK just announced that they, they, they are rejecting the, this acquisition. Um, Microsoft is going into war against the UK. Well, after I've, I've read and heard some of the statements from Microsoft <laughs> directors, uh, especially in the gaming industry. What, what, what's your take? Uh, maybe I will start with you, Robin, this time. What, what's your take on this buyout as a whole? What do you think as a professional, but also as a gamer? And what, also, what, what do you think also about the, um, the antitrust UK uh, organization 
Uh, do you agree with their decision? Do you disagree? Or do you think they are... The, the, they motivated their decision based on the cloud gaming only, not the, not the console gaming or PC gaming, but on the cloud because Microsoft seems to be way over the top on the cloud gaming side. I mean, I think it's a tough question, right? But um, my personal opinion is that it kind of sets a precedent if Microsoft is allowed to buy Activision Blizzard King, uh, and it it threatens the whole industry. And I know that internally and, and externally at Ubisoft, we've had rumors of you know we're going to get bought out by Disney or we're going to get bought out by Apple or whoever. Um, and this announcements it led to a whole lot of rumors that everybody's going to buy out everybody and that you are going to have a super concentrated market of only a handful of, of players um, and especially Chinese players that have a lot of bank power uh, that are going to dominate the markets and I think it's a healthy position to be in uh, either to be under the threat of constant buyouts uh, which can lead to you know short-term decisions in uh, an industry such as ours, that is an entertainment industry, but is also an art form. Uh, we need to have the, you know, like the freedom, creative freedom, uh, to sometimes take some time or make rough decision and not always be under the stress of if I don't please my shareholders, I'm going to uh, be bought out by whoever. That's the first thing. And I also think that it would give a bit too much power to Microsoft because they're not only an editor and a publisher, they also have console and PC. So they also dominate the, dominate the software, but they also dominate the hardware. And I know that they said that they would leave um, uh, Modern Warfare, Call of Duty Modern Warfare on PlayStation as well. But if at some point they want to change their mind, they absolutely have the right to do so. And having someone that an entity that will that would dominate the market that much on every standpoint, soft, hard, everything. I think is dangerous. Uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I like the guy at, at Xbox and Microsoft. I don't have anything against them, but I don't think it's a wise decision to give them that much power. So I 100% agree with the UK decision uh, of the Enterprise Committee, and I think it takes balls to make that call. It's the first antitrust uh, court of law that made that call. And I believe it's going to be followed by others now that they opened the gate to that decision being acceptable. I think the EU is probably going to follow and maybe at some point the US as well. Um, and I don't, don't want to play the guess game, but that I think my personal opinion with this would be nice for them to do so, would be wise of them. Okay. Uh, Julien? Yeah, I think personally, honestly, um, I, 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 I'm looking forward to, for, for kind of, you know, just Xbox and Activision news in general to be about something else than just corporate, you know, mergers and acquisition. There's, there's amazing games from both of these companies that are in development. You know, Activision is preparing uh, Diablo 4 that I'm really excited about. There's uh, Starfield that's coming, etc. And I think I, I find it really interesting. There's been enormous mergers and acquisitions uh, in the past. Uh, in fact, when I joined Massive, it was just a few years after Massive had been acquired by Ubisoft. 
because they had been sold by Activision to Ubisoft uh, back then. You know, so that's always happened, and now it's just it's impressive because it's a lot more money. Um, but you know, you know, Microsoft acquired Bethesda and, and all of that, right? At the end of the day, the games industry is driven by quality games, and the owner of uh, a corporate entity, because we're we're talking here about like you know a corporate entity changing. Blizzard uh, didn't use to necessarily to to be part of Activision. Now it is same thing for King, right? It's just a corporate entity that changes. I think what matters to uh, players. Uh, and ultimately, what matters to players is going to be, you know, what makes the success of the or the failure of the company is, are the games good? Are they uh, properly brought to market? Are they accessible? Um, I think I think it would be really, really doing like a huge shortcut to say that, you know, Activision integrating Xbox would be just like, you know, you take the value of Activision, you just add it to Xbox, and that's how it is. It's all about synergy. It's all about integration. Um, it's all about like what, how will, how would Microsoft actually uh, work with the creators, uh, the developers, the IPs that Activision has, and what do they want to do with it? Um, so I think you know I'm not. I think I'm not the only one in the gaming ecosystem that that uh, is looking forward for this kind of new cycle to be over and to just be able to talk about the great games uh, that these companies are putting out rather than, you know, whether, uh, lo- uh, you know, uh, judges are happy or not with like uh, corporate entity changes. Um, and then uh, I think it's really interesting. I'm not a, I'm not a law specialist. I'm not a specialist in antitrust either. I think the games industry uh, and the, the software industry as a whole, because uh, Microsoft is not just a, a you know game publisher; it, it's a software uh, and hardware and ecosystem kind of uh, online ecosystem giant. I think it's extremely, extremely complex to analyze, um, and I find it hard to get my head around whether it's right or wrong and who should be right or wrong. So because Microsoft is playing, you know, there's, it's been very easy to kind of pitch Microsoft against, uh, you know, Xbox against PlayStation. And that's also because, you know, Sony has been pretty aggressive and and kind of pushing uh, their point there. But I think Microsoft and Sony are two very different companies because there's so, so much more to Microsoft than just Xbox. And you know, Sony, the PlayStation division of Sony, is, it has a much more important part uh, in there. And Sony overall is a, is really a hardware company. Um, so I would be really, I I think it it feels a bit arbitrary to me to have uh, kind of these you know courts of law that are saying that it's right or it's wrong. Uh, at the same time, who else? You know, these courts have been created for a reason. Uh, because monopolies uh, hurt, you know, in general the market, etc. So, um, so I will uh, I will refrain to have a very strong opinion on this, uh, apart from saying that I really uh, I really look forward to the uh, the Microsoft. Uh, I was about to call it an E3 press conference, even though it's not an E3, but like their their pre summer showcase that's just in a month. I think it's going to be really interesting because that showcase that that showcase that's going to be all about games is arriving while 
you know, a lot of people are going to watch it and it's really hard to ignore the context yeah. of uh, what it's going to be in. And in that context, it's also important to include, you know, the really unfortunate issues that uh, Redfall have, has, has had uh, and which is, you know, uh, a Microsoft uh, studio, et cetera. So there, there's a whole context. And so there's a lot of pressure on that Xbox showcase to be, uh, extremely good and it's going to be really interesting and, and basically all the announcements that are going to come there like it's it's th this context is gonna is gonna make the game announcements of this summer uh very special they they have a lot of pressure on themselves to carry a lot of weight and in particular if uh for some reason xbox ends up not being able to pursue the the acquisition you know what does that mean and how is it going to change their strategy that's for me, as a you know, uh, as the CEO of a game company and as a game maker, that's more the question that I ask myself. Is like I, you know, I have a history, whether when I was at EA or, or at Paradox or now, you know, we have really great relationship with the Xbox team, and when when we meet with them, the only thing I, I one of the things I ask on this thing is like. Is it going to change anything on like our relationship? Is it going to change anything on how you perceive uh, smaller independent developers that want to work with you and publish great content on Xbox? And uh, I don't think it will. And they tell me it won't. And that's the one thing that matters the most uh, to me is that we can continue as independent developers, basically being on Xbox as a great platform, being on Game Pass as a great platform to reach players. Uh, and you know the the importance that you know them becoming yeah. much bigger from a first party perspective yeah. is not going to change that. Well, I think you're right. right. It's not changing that much. The it's not going to change as much. Whether it goes south or not, I don't think it's going to change that much the life of the people working at the company and the relationship that they have with other entities. I think my issue is more on the climate that it creates on our industry as a whole, where already struggling a little bit with the you know like long tail uh consequences of covid right um i think that the cinema industry just out of it and we're seeing the end of the aftermath of the covid now right now which is why we've had so many delays all across the industry and we see that a lot of uh the companies in our industry are firing off a lot of people they, I mean, every day we see a new layoff in the announcements all over the world. And just having that really dense and tough climate with the like imminent threats of constant bias from everyone to everyone, I think it's just unhealthy for the people that are actually creating the game. And as you said, the importance that we make good games and we deliver them to our audiences, right? And I just think that that kind of situation is putting everybody in a you know unhealthy, uncomfortable situation that uh, we need to resolve as a whole. Yeah, I think so, you can't assume that that acquisitions are necessarily bad. I, I get them not having all the, the data in front of my eyes, but I, I think that some of the employee unions at Activision have actually supported uh, the the uh, the acquisition, saying that, uh, you know, maybe they would rather be working with the Xbox uh, leadership 
which has, uh, you know, I think it's it's a we can, I would say it's a fact that the you know Xbox as a brand and the Xbox leadership um, has you know, built a really great image for themselves and also, you know, for all the studios that are working with them, etc. Um, you know, a lot of, I would say, again, it's, it's, it's a very complex story. It's really hard. We can't just say acquisitions are bad, leave people alone. Also, you know, Microsoft has offered, has made an offer to Activision because, because Activision was for sale. So if it's not Microsoft, it's going to be someone else. Um, and then, you know, it has different consequences, right? I, I again, too, <laughs> too complex. Yeah, to no, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that acquisitions are bad. Right? I'm not saying that acquisition as a whole are bad and that there shouldn't be any acquisition ever. I mean, we, uh, as you said, I've, I've quartered a lot of guys in the past and we're still doing so. Uh, it's more the uncertainty that is difficult to work with. The, yeah. you know, and I think it's it's really tough. I mean, working us, but I think it's really tough for the people at Activision, at Blizzard, that are creating the game that don't know who they are going to work with in the future, and if that's going to change their timeline, is that going to change their market? Is it going to change anything for them? And they have to keep working on those games, keep you know creating the scenarios, and you know, like at publishing and for the people developing the game. Uh, and they have to work with that uncertainty. And I think it's a really uncomfortable position to be in. I agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank guys for your opinions on that front. I will give you mine. As a gamer, I would like Microsoft to buy out Activision Blizzard because I'm a PC gamer and I'm subscribed to the Xbox Game Pass PC since it exists, since, since it's been announced at E3. I'm a subscriber. I also was a Blizzard fan, and I think for the past 10 years, Blizzard, since they were acquired by Activision, they went to a very wrong direction. And I'm not saying it's Blizzard. I think it's a combination of having to merge with Activision and change their process and losing some of their management team is part of the whole problem. And I will also have one take. I think what's one of the issues of this announcement last year was they did it the, the American way. So saying, hey, guys, we are putting $64 billion to become the biggest gaming company in the world. But you know what? When you look at the market and you look at the two biggest publishers in the world right now, it's Tencent and NetEase. And they are two times bigger than Microsoft and three times bigger than Activision. And they are buying out the whole industry, but without any announcement, just by taking 10% here, 15% there. And at some point, nobody's saying anything about that. <laughs> so for me, their mistake is don't do it the American way <laughs> or wait after it's done. Um, let's talk about the second topic. And this time, uh, Julien, you will start. Uh, you told me it's not like a topic you really uh, strongly and deeply know about. But even with the small knowledge you have about that, and even potentially uh, rumors you, you've heard or things you are not sure about, uh, the Web3 game fire industry popped out last year. And I can tell you, as an agency last year, we had 
uh, Robin was still with us. We had like 10, 15 potential deals with those GameFi projects per week. And since the crypto winter, they disappeared. But at the time, there were numerous projects. We all, we were also facing with with Robin. We were basic, we were basically facing this this big 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 issue. Most of the projects that were presented to us, they weren't even projects. I remember having to show up on a meeting with a client because Robin tried and tried and tried, and it was like too difficult to talk to them. So I hoped on to help the team, and I literally had to explain to the guy what he, what his game was and then i realized if i have to explain to the guy who's building the game what his game is about and what it is there is no game <laughs> so my take is crypto winter was a salvation for the industry it's hard because a lot of people lost money but i think only good projects survived even if maybe some good project also disappeared in the process because they finally didn't get the funds they were waiting for. But do you think NFT is somewhere something that will keep trying to force into the gaming field? Or is that something that is delusional and that will, that's just a fad? It will completely disappear? Or is there a way somewhere? Because what I explain, when I'm trying to explain NFT in gaming to people who are completely against that, I'm saying, imagine World of Warcraft. When they launched the game, if it was, if NFTs existed at the time, you create a game that is a classic game. You buy to play, you buy and you pay a subscription to play the MMO. But each object you get in the game is an NFT, and then suddenly the guy who created the first big sword the biggest world you could ever created in a game. He created the first. The first could have been connected to an NFT and then become, oh, this is the sword that slayed Onyxia for the first time. Oh, this is the, the sword that, that has been owned by this huge PvP player who became the first world champion. And then you can connect the history of a virtual object to the NFT and you create you can create a, a business ecosystem around that without having to force people into that business because if they don't want to buy it they don't have to buy it they can create their own object so what's your take well what's your knowledge and your take about this global nft play to earn well play to earn for me is a bit of a scam but i can explain if, if somebody asks me uh, uh, privately but more more how NFT could connect to games with a real added value. And what's your take on the global thing with your external view? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, I mean, Web3 and crypto in general is, it's a, it's a difficult topic because I read, I read a very long article this morning, which was, uh, pretty interesting. And one of the things that, that stuck in my mind is that they say very early on that um, crypto in general is a speculation market, right? People invest in crypto because they expect it to go up and they expect to be able to make a profit out of it. And that means that largely because the goods that are speculated on are intangible, 
that there's this quote in this article that basically says for crypto to work, people have to believe in crypto. There's no crypto market in general. There's no Web3 unless people believe that Web3 is going to go up and to the right in the future, right? Uh, for the majority of things. I think there there are, there. I don't know the, the, the basically the blockchain technology enough to, to say whether there is kind of a technological application that's going to make things super easy or nobody's been able to, to show me something that would um, that to show me something in a game that wouldn't be able to do without crypto, right? Um, all of these things, even creating, you know, the example that you had on kind of like, this is the sword that, uh, you know, slew Onyxia the first time, that's possible without blockchain. Um, it's just, you know, it might be made easier with blockchain, but it, blockchain doesn't enable this. So so it's a difficult topic to 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 talk about because, uh, people who are uh, supporters are extremely vocal. They're extremely vocal because they have to believe. Otherwise, there's no point. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And they have to actually be very vocal to make other people believe. Because the more people believe, the more uh, demand there is, the more demand, the more value, and the more they can turn a profit. The second thing is we're not, you know, as a full disclosure, we're not doing any, uh, we're not currently considering kind of uh, NFTs or, or crypto in our game. If by the time we reach, you know, the moment to launch, somebody's come up with like an amazing application for, for the kind of game that we're making, you know, we would be stupid not to consider it, but it's not at the core of our design. We're focused on making a great game first and foremost. Um, what, what I found interesting is that we, you know, we're, we're a startup game studio. And so we've been through the the ringer of kind of talking to a lot of investors and VCs and, and all of that uh, in the past few months. And up until that point, I didn't realize how much money was invested in uh, crypto. And, and you know, it's it's amazing. So there's a, there's a venture capital firm called Convoy um, who puts out every quarter, at the end of every quarter, they put out a report of, on, on kind of venture capital investment in gaming, really interesting. Um, and you know, there's talk about the, the the crypto winter, which was the year 2022, which was an investment winter altogether. There's still a lot of investment investment that is actually going into um, into crypto project and into Web three. It's it's a lot less than in 2021. But it's still, uh, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, Q1 and Q2, like the first half of 2022, uh, actually the first three quarters of 2022 had more investments going into Web3 than the first three quarters of 2021. Um, and so, so, so there's still a lot of money that's being put in there as we speak. And that means that there's this, there's going to be an industry there. There's going to be a lot of people trying to make money out of it. Now, as I think, as you say, there's a there's a probably uh, a lot of projects that are um, thinking about crypto as a way to monetize and as a way to make fundraising easier. Uh, because I think if even today, even though it's a lot more difficult than two years ago, if you have you know if crypto is part of your pitch, it's it's probably still easier to uh, to get investment. Uh, and not thinking enough about making great games. Um, that's a problem. I think there are some companies, um, there's a there's a, a, a young studio here in, in Stockholm called Goals 
that's making a, a football game. And they have part of their you know, plan is to, is to have uh, some level of, of blockchain integration, but they are not talking about this when they're communicating with their community. They're like, it's going to come later once the game is great. And I think that's the right approach. Make a great game. If, um, if blockchain actually brings added benefits to the players, once the game is great, then, you know, why not? Um, so great game first, you know, blockchain integration second, I think is really, really the way to go. And it hasn't always been. Um, and, you know, in general, it's, it's also a bubble and there might be something behind it. You know, internet was a bubble 25 years ago and still it's, there is something behind, uh, the internet. It is a bubble. And that also means that there's been a lot of scams and there's been a lot of very high profile, uh, things like, you know, FTX was like tens of billions of dollars. And, and when you read the, um, when you read the court documents on FTX, it's interesting because you, you, you see so much of these billions were invested into FTX because of the bubble, because of the hype and without the investors necessarily really looking at where they were putting their money or kind of actually checking that the company was doing their work because they wanted to be a part of it. There's this kind of thing of like, okay, Web3, if Web3 is the next big thing, you don't want to miss out. And once you're invested, once you've put in your 100 million into crypto projects, then because it only exists, if people believe in it, then you have to put money behind pushing it. And that creates this kind of cycle that, that creates this bubble. Um, I think to a certain degree, my opinion on, on, on this is uh, a bit similar to my opinion on on the Activision, uh, Activision, Blizzard, King, uh, and Xbox, it's it's there's a lot of talk about business. There's a lot of talk about speculation and about is it the next big thing. There's very little talk about what does it bring to the player, how does it improve the experience, um, how does it improve the experience beyond the whole, uh, you know, I might make money, because at the end of the day, we're making video games. Players are interested in video games to have a great experience to just you know they're they're players who do the raids in wow first they do it to be first they don't do it to actually get monetary reward at the end of that raid and i think that's an important thing i think if everything becomes nfts we might lose a bit of that spirit of you know people used to do things for the glory and now they're doing things for the money and it's kind of you know Maybe I'm a bit old school, but I think it kind of sucks. Um, so I hope I hope that I hope that you know it's not just a bubble, and that some companies actually show that it can really help. Um, but I think there should be more discussions around how is it great beyond money making. Like let's let's keep the business on the side, um, and and you know I'm waiting for companies to show how it's a great way to have just make a better game without monetary kind of uh, tie-ins. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Julien. And Robin, your opinion. <laughs> I, I think that, Julien, you actually summed up a lot of great things. I'm not too aligned with the uh, it only exists if you believe that it exists. Uh, because I think that first it, um, I mean, it, it, you can say the same thing about uh, regular fiat money as well. I mean, the euro only has value as long as people believe that it has value, and that value is 
I mean, dependent on the trust that you have in your state. And we have a lot of distrust in a lot of, I mean, all, all over the world in the importance of states whatsoever. So I mean, uh, I, I'm not too sure that, uh, I mean, that's a super valid argument. And I think that it also undermines the value of the actual technological improvement that is behind it. Like the, the actual thing that blockchain is bringing to the table. Uh, and I'm not an expert either, uh, on, especially on the technological side. But from discussion that I've had with people that are experts, uh, it seems that there is a lot of value that some of those projects can bring, either in gaming, but also in other industries. Um, I feel like a lot of the problem that NFTs and Web3 uh, globally have had is a bad PR because of a lot of shitty projects and a lot of scams in the past. 2021 was crazy. I mean, you could have a three-page white paper with an ugly drawing of whatever animal you wanted and say that somewhere in your roadmap, like 2026, you're going to have enough money to create a Metaverse MMORPG Mario Kart ripoff with no one in your team knowing anything about gaming whatsoever. And you could raise millions. I mean, that, that's nuts. And I understand that a lot of people were drawn to that. I mean, you you could raise a lot of money you, and then you could run, you can run them with the money if you wanted. You could actually try to do your project and it was eventually going to fail, but you still had the money and you still had a lot of fun trying. So I understand why a lot of people wanted to do that. And actually with Roma, we've met with a lot of people that did that. But some, like in the that huge pile of garbage, you, you had a few jewels that were actually created by people that first came from the gaming industry, that were people like you and me that actually knew something about gaming, wanted to create a great game, had an actual, you know, a creative proposition for the game. And so either Web3 as an opportunity to raise funds or as something that could actually be interesting for the players. Uh, and as you said, I think the importance here is to first create a good game, a good experience. And then if Web3 can increase that experience in any way, what, why not try to do that? Uh, but creating a great game should be the first step. And that has been the problem from, for a long time because a lot of the people that were interested in GameFi two, three, four years ago, they were not coming, coming to GameFi for the right reason. GameFi was a, like, the, you know, it was the end game for their planning for their NFTs and their fundraising. It was like uh, just a, a pun in their strategy. It was not the actual product that they were trying to create. And I think that that's, lots of where the the issues came from um my and just i mean i i don't 100% agree with you the only thing that i think is probably going to change in the future is the use of the terms like web3 nfts and stuff because now that we've had crypto winter and a lot of gamers um have a really bad relationship to crypto whatsoever i feel like in the future, if some uh, like game creators want to create a product that has a Web3 element to it, they're not going to use the words crypto or NFT or blockchain. 
they're going to use the tech. They're going to explain to the players what they can do in like what like what is the game changing element to it. But they're not going to say that it's an NFT. They're not going to say that it's supported by blockchain technology. I feel maybe the the first one to do it would be Riot with the MMORPG, for instance. I think it would be a great use case, and we could have stuff like Roman, like you, you said, uh, with items that could actually be an NFT, or you know, skins for a character that could be an NFT that we have with an open tradable market in the game, etc. And if they do so, they're never going to say that it's an NFT. They're going to say that it's a digital collectible, for instance. Uh, that kind of stuff, and they are going to make it as easy as possible for people to collect and buy those uh, those skins, uh, which means that they need to implement uh, um, a wallet inside the game that is transparent for the players. That uh, they, they once they create their account on the game, they, it also creates a wallet where they can stock their uh, their NFTs and where they can stock their crypto. They use crypto. You need to be able to buy your NFT with your credit card or your PayPal account or whatever seamlessly. Um, people are never going to do the effort of going into another stock to change uh, Ethereum into your shitcoin and then buy your NFT with your shitcoin. And it takes a week and PhD in computer science to do so. It needs to be super easy. So if you want to do it in the future, uh, I think that's the way to do it. Do it easily and don't say the word NFT. Okay. Well, thank you, Robin. I will just add, well, two small comments. Like uh, Julien said, he talked about investors. And on the marketing side of things, we've been in, well, we've been in touch with uh, one of what one big investor in, in the crypto uh the the, the the play to earn industry i will call that that name because they were calling that that and i think one of the issue of the whole ecosystem was also the way those investors were investing so first they would put some amount of money with a piece of paper my my little nephew of 10 years old would be able to write and then they were saying, oh, we will put more money if you get 100k followers on Twitter. <laughs> How is this a KPI for a video game? Please tell me. <laughs> because even though they weren't even checking if those 100k followers were bots or organic. So we had, we literally had some people asking us to buy bots for them. And that's something we don't do. So we told them, no, you, you will need to put way more money to get organic followers. That one follower on Twitter is it's between three and seven dollars. It's not a hundred K for five K. Uh, and the other thing is I I agree with Julien and you, Robin, but I I really think it, it needs to bring something more to the game. Like I've I've been playing even even is celebrating his 20, 20th anniversary this year. I've been a player of even Line since forever. <laughs> I played the game during the beta and I'm still playing the game from time to time. I'm going back to the game because it's difficult to find a game that is having this that is giving you the same feeling as a player. But one thing that is fun about uh, uh, even Line is the in-game currency is ISK. And this game is made by an Icelandic studio, CCP. 
And the money in Iceland is ISK. And the fun stuff is they, they've created a way of playing the game where you can buy an in-game product called Plex and you can buy it with real money or with in-game money. And then you have a point of conversion. You can know how much an in-game ISK is worth in real money. And that, that helped the game marketing because every time there was a huge uh, battle between players because it's a, a really a PvP game mostly, we were able to count the losses on each side and say, oh, they lost this amount of in-game ISK and it represents X or Y amount in the real life. Like there was a battle that cost like 70k uh, dollars worth of... And do we need NFTs to do that calculation? I don't know. Maybe it will ease the system. Maybe, like you said, Julien, it will be a tech, a tech company that will build something seamless and will come to you and say, integrate our tech, and then you will have access to the blockchain fully transparently, and people won't even know they are using the blockchain. But it needs to be easy because another thing we were facing with Robin when we had to market those games, they always said, oh, the guy has to buy $400 worth of NFT to play my game, but who will pay $400 to play a game that doesn't exist? Or that is worse than the worst mobile game that exists already on the, on the mobile platform. Sorry for mobile gamers, but I think the worst PC game and the worst console game are not worse than the, the worst mobile game. And the worst of the worst mobile game sometimes is better than some of the crypto projects we worked with and they were asking you to spend $400 to access the game. And I think that's insane because yeah, like you said, it was only about the FOMO. It's a great example that you, that you mentioned on EVE Online because uh, CCP two months ago raised $40 million to make you know, a blockchain enabled uh, game, uh, which is probably going to be very close to EVE Online. That's going to be a really interesting use case because as you say, like we know that CCP is capable of making amazing games, and we also know that Eve is probably the most is the best example of a game with a functioning economy that is actually tied to you know real value through the Plex, and it's going to be really interesting to see how you know whether the blockchain enabled version of that is actually you know bringing new things and how it's going to be like i'm really looking forward to to seeing both side by side of course it's going to be different games right but it's kind of like yeah. how does the blockchain changes versus the the you know eve online has it has as it has been before it's it's going to be uh, i think it's going to be really cool to see i think um the I mean, there are tons of use cases, but the two main things that blockchain wants to bring to the table when it comes to gaming is first creating a bridge between real, real life and digital life, which means that the money that you can gain on the game, then you can transfer it as actual money that you can spend to do your groceries afterwards. Uh, and that's the main thing right now is that, uh, I mean, I have probably more than a thousand euros worth of skins on League of Legends right now. And I don't play the game that much anymore. Maybe I could, you know, sell some of those skins to like pay my groceries yeah. or pay my holidays or whatever. And I can't do that right now. 
And the second but, thing is, you're going to tell me that already exists, that CSGO, that's in the knife yeah. on the valve and stuff. The second thing is decentralization. Um, of, yes, that exists on Valve, that exists for CSGO, but tomorrow they want to unplug the servers. My five or $10,000 worth of knives, they're vanished in thin, like thinner because they, don't, they only exist into those servers. What blockchain brings to the table is decentralization. Tomorrow, Valve decides to that they want to throw CSGO to the to the trash because they are focusing on Counter Strike Two. All right, I keep my knives and they keep yeah. some of their value, and hopefully, uh, I also have the opportunity to use them in another IP, which yeah, yeah. is the I mean that's the end game for those guys, metaverse type stuff. But uh, that's what they want to bring to the table because right now I have thousands of euros worth of uh, League of Legends skins. And if tomorrow League of Legends shuts the servers, that's tough for me, yeah. but <laughs> tough shit. Yeah. But, but like, uh, I think it will be a thin line between playing video games about fun, not making money. And we don't want, it will be a thin line between keeping the spirit of video games, having fun. And not falling into oh I play games to earn money. And the the market will have to adapt at some point. Yeah, I think it's it's such a rabbit hole. We could talk about this all night. But like yeah, the, the dream yeah. of decentralization is also I, again really not a technical expert, but I some of these very high profile collapses like FTX and others they have like people have lost things they, they show that it's not fully decentralized right uh and again not understanding enough the technology to actually go into it but there's you know there's uh there's there's dream and there's reality and and i think you know of course the end game is uh you know i buy a gun it's an nft in this game it's going to work in this other game i think whenever that is mentioned anywhere uh, you know millions hundreds of thousands, because I don't think we're millions, hundreds of thousands of game developers cry all around the world. It's like, this is not, you, you can't, you know, buy a gun in Battlefield and, and easily transfer it to Ghost Recon. You know, it's, it, mm. those are, you know, different games, unless there's a direct agreement between, you know, EA and Ubisoft to create equivalent guns in both games. And that has to be done manually for everything, etc. So. I think you know to a certain degree there's a dream uh, and there's the reality and and the bubble, the bubble grew so fast um, yeah. into you know for for you know applications that uh, would be you know I wouldn't be surprised if um, Epic you know eventually has transferable items between Fortnite and uh, and the other games that there there are other own games and there are other own experiences they can do this within the whole within their own company or activision between the various versions of call of duty etc um for this to be you know fully interoperable and then we're going into metaverse thing but it's just like it's 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 decades of changes not, not just development, it's not about technical development, it's about changes in the structure of the games industry, in the structure of like private enterprise and all of that, right? Um, but I want to finish my tirade on a positive note. 
I was the same opinion. Uh, in general, I'm play to wear, and I think uh, not not a big fan. But uh, not uh, late last year, I, I actually visited my uh, my very first boss, who was uh, uh, the head of business development and then CEO at G Potato, back who gave me my my very first job. And he has uh, now started like a very small mobile developer, not game developer, but app. And one of he, one of the apps that they do is they do a uh, kind of like a, a very light fitness uh, app that he defines as play tour, and because it counts the steps that you do, and there are challenges and community challenges, etc. And at the end of the day, um, they're not uh, blockchain enabled. You gain uh, if you reach certain challenges, etc. You get uh, Amazon vouchers and stuff like that. And you know, on the principle, it's play to earn. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah. because it's very simple and it's kind of like giving an incentive to people for people to be more healthy. Um, I'm like, that's this kind of play, this, this, this kind of play to earn it's fine. And I think, you know, having been in the MMO space since I started working, there was always play to earn. There was always players who built characters for the purpose of reselling their accounts. Um, they saw it as an investment, right? That was the thing. It would, might, or, might or might not have been allowed, uh, but some players did it. And so they played to create value and to be able to resell it. Um, and I think that always existed. It, it, it's, you know, certain players will always want one and they will always be able to do that, whether blockchain or not. It just yeah. makes it more accessible to do it um, with with blockchain. So I think... It's, I think what's important at the end of the day uh, is to, you know, players who want to do that, they should be able to do that because it's their, you know, freedom. Uh, but what's important for me is that we don't kind of push all players into this. Yeah. It's yeah. just kind of like, you know, if you, if you all of a sudden you go back to your World of Warcraft example, you know, you, you slay that dragon, you, you get that sword, and then there's, there's a literal like price tag on it. It changes, yeah. even if you didn't think about it before, it changes something in your mind. And I think, uh, I think that would be, that, that would be sad if, if it's pushed on everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Changing the, the mindset would be bad. Talking about resetting accounts, you are talking to one of those, but in my mindset, I never created an account in the objective of selling it. Yeah. It was more, okay, this MMO, I will never play it any, again, ever, because mm -hmm. I'm done with it. Let's sell my account because I won't let my character die on a server that will die anyway. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I've been very lucky with EVE Online because I've sold several accounts. But at some point... Uh, CCP addressed that with the character Bazaar, and at some point you were able to buy a character. You kept your account, but you were selling your character, but not for real money. It was in-game money. Uh, so Which is exchangeable kind of, for Plex, yeah, etc. Yeah. Exactly. But, uh, and uh, that's also, that also became for free-to-play games. The last one I've played as a MMO was the Arcage, uh, Arcage the first release, the re-release, and the third release. The first release was average, the second was amazing, and the third was a scam. But the thing is, I, I, I sold my account of the second release for a certain amount. So when I started a character on the third release, 
I was like, okay, I will invest this amount in the shop because I know that if I stop the game within the next two months, I will get back all the money, not more. It's it's it usually it's it's less it's less money than the amount you invested as 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 money or as time. But I was like, okay, I can put 300 euros because if I stop the game in a month or in a month and a half from now, I will be a, a, around between 250 and 300. I will sell the account. So I can allow myself to spend a bit more money in the, in the store because I will be able to sell the character later. But like you said, it's not, it's not in the rules. Well, even in the, the rules you sign as a player, it says you you are not allowed to sell your account. It's, but some games opened it. I think uh, even very yeah. even you know, fifteen years ago, EverQuest ended up having a solution where you could trade accounts safely and and you know, there there's there's some stuff. I think it's 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 been part of gaming. It's been part of like persistent gaming. Anything that's persistent has value, and there's trading, and you know, there's the C market and all yeah. of that. It, it's always gonna be a part of it. I think it's the question of how much. The, the big difference with with the kind of web three game at least some web three games because again i think some projects are you know uh doing going in some really good directions um that they they put that at the center of everything right uh and i think that's uh i think that's that's kind of an issue um it's a question of priorities and it, it at the end of the day it's also a philosophical question like should everything be monetizable should everything have a monetary value etc again we can talk about this for another four hours yeah yeah it becomes so, all of what's what what you want to do and what you want to do for your game yeah completely well that's a very early business so that's some at some point we will see where it goes in the next few years uh last topic influence marketing and why I'm talking about this topic, because we are three French guys, so you might have heard of what's happening in France around influencer marketing, the French government uh, creating laws around influencer, influencer marketing, what's, what's authorized, what's not, uh, trying to uh, fight against uh, what other influencers call influencers instead of influencers. So who people who are using their notoriety to promote uh, bad products, um weird play to earn games or cryptocurrencies or even um casinos and gambling uh, towards an audience that is way too young um what's your take about influence marketing because it became something today i think a company who wants to do marketing can't avoid influence marketing you, you can't avoid it it's part of like at go to rabbit we have five pillars pr media buying kols social media and something we call asset creation that is more about the the creatives like images videos events etc etc so everything that is not in those four four other pillars but kols became one very important pillar robin you're working uh, on influencer marketing for uh, Ubisoft. I will let you start, Julien, as you are already on screen. And you also have, you told me, I might have a very old vision on influence marketing. So let's go with it. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I think what is, I, I, I haven't been 
working on influencer marketing uh, very, very much, if at all, uh, since it became, you know, a, a, a thing. Um, but I think one thing that I can say from, from the time where I was still uh, working on marketing for games overall was that it's, it became fairly clear, uh, you know, for us, you know, when I was working at, at uh, Ubisoft on the division or, or at EA afterwards that um, pe people, players were getting their information and their opinions, et cetera, uh, elsewhere, uh, else in, in the non-traditional media, you know, there was, you know, um, you know, print magazines were, were changing. A lot of them were disappearing. Um, you know, video was becoming more and more important. Uh, Twitch, just in TV, existed at some point and then became Twitch and all those kind of things, right? And at the beginning, I mean, I remember, I think the first time I was really encountered this was probably the, um, the marketing campaign for Battlefield 4. Um, and, you know, we meeting with some of the you know we had we had a we had a community group and within that there were there were a lot of youtubers and they were not uh they were not paid you know we we gave them early access we gave them access to footage we gave them uh access to developers the ability to do interviews etc and then it started i think during that time uh for us that there was discussion about uh, budget and then there was uh you know creators programs started appearing to be a lot more clear uh, in the US, there were regulations around advertising and how uh, sponsored uh, streams and videos needed to be displayed and they needed to be clear and they needed to be mentioned because they were considered advertising. You know, I think in general, things have moved from, from uh, kind of the more 20 years ago, traditional kind of you're buying uh, media space, you're buying advertising space in a your print magazine or on websites to uh, you're doing uh, infomercials uh, that's always existed, um, you know, basically like things that look like an article, but they're really paid advertising and they're identified as such. And that same thing moves into YouTube and Twitch and into, and into the rest. It's kind of, I feel that it's kind of normal that it's regulated because at the end of the day, if it's sponsored, then it's, you know, it needs to be ready. It, if it's sponsored, it's advertising, you know, in, in the big definition of advertising. And then it needs to be regulated so that, again, like it's a question of defending the rights of the players and the rights of the customers. It's like, it's fine for people to watch a sponsored video. A lot of people watch sponsored videos on YouTube channels that they follow and love, and they're really happy with it, but then they know it's sponsored. So then they can make their own judgment on whether they believe what the, uh, the influencer are saying or not. I think that's absolutely fair. We should never you know, treat the uh, players as if they're stupid. We should just say, it's a sponsored video. I was paid to do this, but, you know, then, you know, take everything with a pinch of salt. Uh, we've also had the case uh, on some of the games that I've worked on that, you know, if some influencers were not happy with the game and they were sponsored to make some videos and they were not happy with the game. And so they voiced their opinion saying that they didn't like the game. And that's their right, you know. Uh, it's it, it was not always <laughs> received really well uh, in you know the people that have you know essentially paid them. But so long as there's no contract that says like you have to promote this and say, uh, so long as the contract actually gives the influencer the freedom to say what they actually think about the product, then it is uh, then it is right. So I think you know 
regulation is important to to protect the customer from being lied to uh, too much. Um, and uh, yeah, and then more recently, I have no idea what's happening. So, so I will leave it to Robin to enlighten us. Thanks, Julia. I mean, I, I think uh, obviously I'm biased when it comes to content creators as they're paying my bills. Uh, they, they've been paying my bills for a while now. But um, I think, I mean, it's obviously super important for any kind of publisher right now. And content creator strategy is at the very core of a lot of our brand and road to launch strategies for all of our titles. Like triple A's or quadruple A's, as we say now, uh, and the free-to-play uh, mobile games as well. Uh, and we've seen the importance of that super recently. I mean, during the beta of, of Xdefiant, the closed beta, that was happening last month, it was more important for us, uh, not necessarily more important, at least as important for us to have Gotaga or XQC say, holy shit, that game is, that game is actually better than Modern Warfare than having a Kotaku article because that drives players to actually try your, your game, that drives other influencers, other content creators to then stream your game. And you have that snowballing effect of, oh, if that big ass content creator is, is playing that game, I'm also going to do it. And then the game is free on Twitch. It's one of the most played games on Twitch. So people want to try it out. And then it becomes a kind of phenomenon. And we've seen the importance of those campaigns super early this year. Uh, if we take the example of Hogwarts Legacy, the three days early accesses for content creators was super successful. And I'm pretty sure it drove a lot of the, like this whole 12 million copies in the first two weeks, because in large part, people had seen people play, people play the game and they spent a lot of money on their campaign. I mean, everybody and their grandmas were playing that game at the time. Um, and so, I mean, it would be, uh, you would be lying to say that it's not super important for us right now. But I have two main points that I want to make. The first one is that when it comes to gaming content creators, I feel like we have reached a point where we're in an unbalanced and unhealthy relationship with some of them and that it's not healthy to you know just spend 50k like throw 50k on someone and ask him to play your game for, for an hour and he, i mean even if he doesn't like the game or even if he doesn't have a good experience just then stop playing the game whatsoever after an hour and we need to have a closer relationship something that's a more win-win uh something that a relationship where we nurture our creator, we find the right profiles, the people that actually care about the game and we nurture them. And maybe they can help us make the game better as well. And, you know, like something that is meaningful both for the creators and their community and for us as well, instead of just relying on, I mean, I'm going to pay Squeezy in France to play that game. Whatever the game is, Squeezy is going to play the game because he has the biggest community, which is, unhealthy and I, I think it's not working as a strategy anyway because the audiences can tell if the content creator actually wants to play the game or if it's just paid to do so and this is why we're focusing at Ubisoft on the creator program where we give a shot to a galaxy of smaller content creators some of them have like 50 viewers and we've seen that 
well, when we're giving them these opportunities, we can then identify the profiles that you know they engage well with the game they want to participate in, and then we can re-engage with them. Uh, we've seen examples, so great examples of uh, a guy uh, in the UK that was playing Exit Bayern this week, uh, this month, and he had a hundred viewers, like hundred of CC viewers on Twitch before Exit Bayern, and then he jumped to 2.5k, 3k during the Exit close beta. And then it stayed to similar-ish numbers after the close beta ended. I mean, it didn't stay at 3K, but it didn't go back to 100 viewers. And it kind of changed that guy's life around, you know? Like, uh, he started making a living out of playing games because we gave him the opportunity to do so because we identified that particular profile and we wanted to work with him, right? Um, and so I think that's the direction that we need to go to. We need to, to, dive, we need to work with more diverse profiles as well. Uh, we need to work with like uh, female streamers and Fox streamers and LGBTQ streamers, and you know, like work with all these people that don't necessarily have a voice in the industry or didn't have as much as a voice as they deserved in the in the industry for a long time. It, it's our responsibility to to help them to to help them have one. That's the first thing. Second thing is that I'm uh, making a big difference between content creators and influencers. Let's just circle back to uh, Roman's point about the legislation in France, uh, where content creators are people that first create content, and they have a community that follow them because they create great content. And sometimes they can leverage that community to make a living, right? Uh, and, con the, and influencers, they first have an influence on people, but don't necessarily make content. Like you have a lot of people on Instagram or TikTok whatsoever that are followed for who they are and not for what they do. And those people, they don't necessarily come with the best intentions or they don't necessarily have the you know, like great morality or whatever. And it's important to make sure that because they have a great power, they also have great responsibility. Uh, and that's, you know, like some some of them we've seen that they have been abusing of those uh, of, of that responsibility and that power, and it's important to keep them in check. Uh, but it's super specific to kind of influencers. And when I've been talking to my mother and I said that I was working with influencers, she was like, "Oh, so you're working with like people in Dubai you know, that don't pay their taxes and that uh, are uh, you know like uh, selling shitty dropshipping uh, products to the audiences." And no, we're not. We're working with people that create content, that are creative people, that run businesses, uh, that love gaming, and that have a really close relationship to their audiences. And that has value. That has value. But uh, scamming people from Dubai, I don't think it has a lot of value. <laughs> no, but I like the way you you also integrate the way we we were selling influencers as Ghost Rabbits, saying we are not a talent agency. So when we work with either a gaming-related uh, company or a non-gaming-related company, we won't push you our talents because what we you, you remember when we were talking about that, the problem of talent agencies, their real client is not the brand, it's the talent. Because if they don't bring enough business to the talent, the, the talent goes to another agency. And he will, be, he will be represented by somebody else. The last example I can talk about is basically Alexandra Bodes, 
We used her for Yux. It was amazing. At the time, she was working with Evolved. They might have not bring, bring enough business to her. And now she's working with CAA. So she went to the biggest agency in the US. <laughs> I think it's also a matter of um, coming to a content creator with a project that is already like uh, yeah. done and finished and packed and coming to a content creator with a rough idea and saying, hey, do you want to work with us? And do your, your own thing. Yeah, because they are creative people and they're not just their numbers and their audiences. They're yeah. also people with IDs and stuff that they want to do. And it's an approach that you're trying to have more and more to come really early in the projects and identify key people that will fit with uh, what we want to do and say, well, we have this rough ID. Um, we think that it would be great to work with you on it. What do you think? And are you interested in working with us? Um, and that's the, something that we're trying to do uh, a lot. It's difficult by, because that needs that means that you need to have people in each country that know their content creators territory really well. And you know, like the, the, the web of content creators, okay. which thankfully we can do at Ubisoft because we yeah. have uh, hubs all a over the world. Sorry? A full team. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean- a team of people team. and people all around the world. That's not the case for everybody. And exactly. remember, remember Robin, when we had campaign in France and the UK, <laughs> I will always remember when it was easy for me to, to <laughs> say, oh, we will use this guy, this guy, this guy, and this girl because I know them and I know their content. And then we were, we were going to Nick saying, hey, do you have any ideas for the UK? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that, that, it was, that, it was complicated. The easy thing for us at Ubisoft is that um, I'm talking to teams in Korea and they know the Korean content creators. Yeah, and you can say, oh, we really need to work with that guy. It'd be a great fit. I trust them to know that content creators better than I do. But uh, a lot of smaller teams or, you know, like smaller publishers that don't necessarily have hubs all over the world, it's a lot harder for them to work with those specific territories and so they rely on agencies. And as you said, some of those agencies that I mean, they don't actually sell the product the best way, or they have their roster of influencers and they're trying to push, and it's not always easy for, for publishers. So we have that chance at Ubisoft to be big enough to have teams yeah. all over the world and to know the creators, and they, some of them, most of them, they also want to work with us. We don't have to struggle to find content creators that are interested in trying the new Assassin's Creed game. Yeah, uh, and, and like you said, there are content creators and influencers. We also consider there are amb potential ambassadors and influencers. And then when you go on that route, the potential ambassador is basically what we call influencer marketing. So you pay a bit, but the guy is the person is really engaged with the content, the game, or the product because he or she loves it. And the influencer needs to be both like a media buying campaign, just like Julian said. So more and more people who are just doing influence and don't want to be really engaged within the project. There are technologies that are being put together right now. Uh, I can quote like in, in Streamly, for example, it's something that will put ad, ads through Streamlabs on stream without even asking the influencer if he's okay with that. I think 
the danger for those content creators who are not, who never engage with the product or are are n taking campaigns for product they don't even care about. They will fall into that new media buying way of doing media buying and you will just pay a CPM and you will do ads and, and only try to get the reach. And then you will turn to potential ambassadors who will not only create content around the game or around the, the, the service, they will also push the service to their friends, to their family, because they believe in the product and they like it. Uh, that, that's a very important thing, right? It's finding the right people that are going to engage with your game, like the right influence, the right content creators, the right cohorts that will hit your target, it will engage with your game well. And I mean, at the end of the day, you need to have a good product. Uh, yeah. You can spend as much money as you want and have the biggest influence in the world, in the world if your product is not good enough, it's not going to work. But yeah. it's, you need to find those key people that are going to work well with your game and the holy grail of uh, influencer marketing strategies is to pay someone to play like your game for a couple of hours and they end up liking the game so much that they keep playing for free for a couple of weeks uh, and that's what we're all looking for unfortunately it's really difficult because even if you do your targeting really well i mean those guys are highly solicited they have people calling them and sending them emails every day and even if you have the best product in the world getting their attention and getting their stream time uh, for free like that, it's extremely complicated because you're competing with all the other companies, gaming and mainstream, that are also soliciting them. Uh, yeah. So it's a tough industry. Uh, it's changing rapidly. We've seen that uh, it's growing so, so much. I mean, COVID helped a lot. And now we're, we're not, I mean, we're not back to pre-COVID. Uh, to like pre-COVID situation, things actually changed during COVID. Uh, and we have so many people that, that stream now uh, and such a wide diversity of people, projects, uh, games that uh, are displayed, uh, people that will play a game. I mean, whatever type of game you're creating, you're going to find people that stream it that don't necessarily have like 15,000 viewers, right? But you're going to find people that want to stream it because they enjoy your game and are going to, as I said, become brand ambassadors, if yep. the game's good enough. Okay, well, that's it for part two. Uh, we will switch to part three. So basically it will be uh, talking about your best gaming experience since you are a gamer. Uh, so it's a lot more fun, less thinking. It's more about talking why, well, not why, but how you fell in love with gaming and what kept you in love with this industry uh, through its media itself, which is the video game. So if you want to start, Robin. Yeah, sure. I have a couple of anecdotes, actually, uh, that I think reflect what I like about our industry. I mean, I've been playing games for uh, pretty much all my life. And for a while, it's been a solitary pleasure, you know, like uh, me alone in my room playing uh, Japanese RPGs like Final Fantasy, that kind of, that kind of games. Uh, and it's really been a lonely pleasure, a really good one to learn pleasure. 
And now it's much more of a social activity for me than it used to be. Um, and it's also why I'm so much into esports. I remember when I was alone in my room in uh, London when I was studying, it was the League of Legends World Championships. And first week of the World Championships, Fnatic was 0-3, and they needed to win every single game of the second wing of the second week to uh, go into playoffs, so to pass the, the elimination phase, in, I mean, the qualification phase into the elimination phase, including defeating the top Chinese team and top Korean team that defeated them the week before. And they did that, like they won the four games and then all the tiebreakers and it was just crazy and everybody was going crazy. And I remember the players were crying and the audience was, I mean, it, it could have been scripted, you know, like it, it felt like it was a shonen manga, like uh, they lost all their games and then second week they come back and they destroy everyone and everybody goes crazy. And I was like, holy shit, that's like, that's so intense and the audience and everything. And it was just like a, so much emotion that uh, I found love with esports instantly. Uh, and I mean, that was a turning point to me personally, but also professionally, where I decided that that's the ecosystem I wanted to be a part in, and that brings that much emotion to people. Uh, and and I kept following esports, and I still am a Fnatic fan because of that specific moment. And from time to time, when I'm done, I still look at the, you know, like, uh, like after movie of uh, the competition, the game and stuff. It brings a lot of energy back to me. It's like uh, the people that uh, well, watch hockey or stuff like that when they are done. It has the same uh, effect on me. And I've had a similar moment, similar-ish moment this year at Speedon. So as I said, it's the French equivalent of the AGDQ. So it's a speedrunning marathon for uh, uh, Doctors of the World. And we had a guy that was playing Tetris. Uh, and he was playing Tetris the Grandmaster. And he was trying to... Uh, get the grandmaster rank in the game, which is something insanely difficult that I think like maybe 10 people in the world got it. And the game has been out for 20 years and only 10 people in the world managed to do it. And so the guy was playing on stage, a, a thousand people in the audience and he was playing. And at some point, everything goes so fast, like he has to put three pieces a second and the pieces start being um, like transparent so you don't see anything. So it's like he's being bl blindfolded and he does it. And you see him like you're pushing the pad and screaming and being like, yeah. And everybody in the audience is shouting and going crazy for Tetris. Like Tetris, Tetris the game's been out for like a thousand years and, and still it brings so much joy to everybody to see that guy do that thing that everybody thought was impossible. He did it live on stage for an event and then the donation went crazy everybody was giving like hundreds of thousands of euros it was insane and i was in the audience at that moment and i just lost my freaking mind and that's the kind of moments that i want to you know be part of like so 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 cool great thank you and you julia uh yes i think I, I'll, I'll, I'll join the Robin on the kind of the, the, the social aspect of gaming is, is what pulled me in. Uh, I was, I, I, I feel like I was born with a, 
with a master system gamepad in my hands because I, I I I remember as far as as far as I can remember I was playing games and somehow I think I was really lucky. My my parents always felt that um, video games were a smarter way to spend your time than watching TV. So so I could play a lot of video games because it's uh, it was either that or watching cartoons and they thought playing video games was like a better way to spend time so i kind of grew up with 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 gaming and uh and game making a little bit and in, in the modern community etc and then um there was a game which you might remember uh it was called in france like a triumph prophecy or the forthcoming yeah. in english which was kind Played of like a lot. the first the first, uh, it was fully free. It was, you know, it was, it was, there was no microtransaction or anything. Uh, MMO in um, in France and and Europe. And the reason why it was fully free with no monetization is because uh, you know unlimited broadband didn't exist back then. So everybody was paying internet by the minute. And the publisher of the game was France Telecom. So they were getting all the. They had like I don't know eighty percent of the internet market in France. That they were, you know, basically they needed gaming. For people to spend time online because people paid by the minute, and and I think I, I met um, I met amazing people in uh, in that game. I I, I joined a, a guild which I am still a part of uh, now, twenty years later, um, and then that from from there migrating into Dark Age of Camelot, which was probably the most pivotal game in in, in my life because I. What happened there is that I I played a lot, but mostly eventually, I I got to meet with the people I played with, and then eventually we didn't play together that much anymore. We were just going out, and we just became really really close, you know, real life friends, and you know, uh, some of my best friends I met through this, and some through the people I played with, because it was the early days of the MMO business in Europe, really um the people who operated like the people from goa who were basically the operator the, the first operators of mmos in europe when other game companies like NCSoft, who was launching lineage and guild wars and and others when they came to europe they're like we need to open an office who knows how to make mmos they actually went to france and hired all of these people and what i realized is that what i realized now after being in the industry is that all of these, so many of these people from this guild that were basically the early players in MMOs are now working in the industry. Many of them I have worked with myself. Um, and some of them I continue to work with on a regular basis, which were people that I played with when I was 14 years old, you know, in the first MMO. And they became real life friends. And then somehow, you know, they, some of them, you know, uh, mentored me when I was joining in the industry. Um, as my, my first, uh, boss, Nicola, that I mentioned earlier, is working on the mobile kind of, you know, play tour and apps now in Korea, he's, he was also a former, you know, uh, person from, from Goa and he, he hired me, um, and, and all of this kind of network that went, came through games, just purely pe meeting people in, uh, the forthcoming in, uh, Dark Age of Camelot. And then basically taking that friendship into real life. And then, you know, I think that's, um, I think that's a, the, the power that's just like a huge power of gaming of creating social relationship. Um, and, and I think after that, when I started working in games, 
there were always so many, you know, you go to an event and people start telling you, hey, we wanted to say thank you because, you know, I met my I met my husband in this game and now we have three kids and we're so happy and, and all of this. Like people have these live stories around games, which also means that gaming gaming has an impact on people's lives that is, you know, a lot of the time very, very positive. Um, I think I would, if I hadn't, you know, I don't really know, but if I hadn't met all of these amazing people and if, if we hadn't made the journey into the games industry, you know, roughly at the same time, supporting each other, et cetera, I wouldn't be, you know, where I am now. Um, and I was always, I, when, I, when I meet some of the people from the original Dark Age of Camelot dev team, in like professional circumstances. So it's super weird because I really want I really want to be like a crazy fan. But you don't, you know, they're my peers now. And it feels super yeah. weird. So I come to them and I'm like, I really like what you did back 20 years ago. That was that had a big impact <laughs> on my life. And they're like, go away, weirdo. <laughs> Just like leave me alone. But it's it's that impact on, on life that that's so important and and you know trying you know, I, I remember the impact that, that this game and these communities, like the community aspect of it, which is amazing, what it had on me. This is also kind of the reason why why I want to make games and kind of create uh, online communities and nurture these social aspects. Now making our own games, because beyond the, the fun and the stories that you can tell and, you know, the immersion that you can bring through amazing, you know, art and audio and, and narrative, this is the 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 social aspect of gaming i find is is uh it's it's just it's just amazing it's magical uh and and i think that's also despite all the problems that are industry and all these money discussions etc like this is for me what's magical with the games industry and with games in general is this this social aspect this thing that's actually gaming brings people together across you know, geographies and languages and beliefs, et cetera. And, and, and I want to, you know, nowadays I have the opportunity to do my part to contribute to this continuing. And I think, I think it's a, it's a really cool chance uh, to do that. Yeah. Cool. Well, you know what? I've got the perfect sentence to close your, uh, uh, to close this part based on what you just said. It's supposedly by Plato, but might not be from him. You can discover more about a person in an hour of play than in a year of conversation. That's true. And I don't know if it's really Plato, but even if it's not him, I think it's absolutely true because I've got the same kind of experience. My best friends of today are my, my gaming friends from when I was a teenager. And we are still playing from time to time. Well, life being what it is you get less and less time to play video games so it's difficult but still you keep getting in touch with them you organize things like even people i haven't seen for the past five years i give them a call and i say hey let's have something in paris in next september let's go see a stand-up and they are like oh yeah great we will catch up <laughs> because you know you spend time with them playing and facing challenges so you know even even if you don't talk to them for many many years when you get back to them they didn't change and you 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 might have changed in some ways but not in your core person and what they've seen when they were playing with you was the core person you were and you still are 
and you will be. Yeah, I think there's a thing in saying that virtual places are real places, right? You know, you have memories with your friends of like, oh, we did this trip or we were at this bar or whatever, and it stays in your mind. And, you know, I have that, but I also have these memories of these things that happened when we were, you know, besieging this fort in, in Archage of Camelot or we were doing this battle in Eve Online or whatever. It's just kind of like, there's no difference in my in my brain. Like, these are things that happen in, in virtual places, but with real people. And that yeah. makes that makes the whole that makes the whole difference. They become if the people are real, then the places are real. Uh, and they, you know, you can create the same memories and the same kind of strong relationships and bonds with people. So uh, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we will do a quick pass on the, the, the last part, which is about one challenge you are particularly facing right now in your uh, job, position, work, company, uh, within the industry. It doesn't have to be long or complicated. It's more about, okay, I've just built that and now my main challenge is this. And we won't try to think about a solution. It's more about, here, here is the challenge. I can start with, for example, I'm struggling recruiting French people who knows about the industry and are able to speak and understand English. Please, French people, be better. That I, I For many, many, many years, I didn't realize it. I was hearing French people don't speak English, and I was like, "Ah, that that that's uh, we are flaming ourselves. It's not good. That's not true." And since I have this company, I had Robin. Well, we had Melina, but Robin, he knows also because he was in the recruitment process at some point. You, you've seen how many French people were asking if we had a position without being able to understand English. With a company based in London and a co-owner being British, guys, be aware of one thing. If one of the co-owners is American or English, he won't speak your language. He speaks the most, the most spoken language in the world, not in terms of number, but in terms of business. Everybody, everybody is speaking in English. So if there is a British guy owning a company, don't ask him to understand Spanish or French or German. He will speak only English. And my partner at Cosy Rabbit, he speaks only British. <laughs> so that's, well, for example, that's one of our challenges at Cosy Rabbit is we have amazing French profiles when it comes to being creative, marketing, etc. But please, guys, learn English. It's not that hard. If, if I could do it, you can do it. <laughs> so I will let you start, Julia. Uh, all right. I mean, you're, you're finishing with a dollar, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try and, and take a good spin on it. I mean, Everything is hard when you start a company. That's just a fact. Uh, you just go and then everything is hard. You have to learn so many things and, you know, stuff that, that, you, that you didn't know uh, to do before. And also we started now. Um, and it was very interesting talking to many people that I know that started a studio in the craziness of 2021. And they were like, 
your seat. You're going to get so much money so easily. It's going to be so easy. And then the same, you know, when, when I talk to other people who know the, the market a bit more, they're like, yeah, we started a company. And they're like, do you doing that now? Are you an idiot? <laughs> this is not the time to do this. Um, so it's been... Uh, it's been difficult because in general, like the, 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 the market, like the, the, the financial ecosystem is uh, not as welcoming as it was before. It's recovering from the craziness of two years ago, basically it's going to get back up. Um, but to, to, to put a, to, to, to end on a good note though, I think it's, uh, it's been difficult, but it's made us better because, you know, to a certain degree, the craziness that, that you both were mentioning, uh, before. Um, was not healthy and now it's much healthier. There's much better discussions around what makes a good game and a successful game and building a good business. And then eventually, you know, if you have a good team, you have a solid idea, you do your homework and you prepare thoroughly, uh, then you find a good partner that's aligned with you. Uh, so, so it's been uh, grueling uh, and difficult and very challenging, but it's, it's, it's getting there. And, and I'm actually uh, fairly convinced that having gone through that difficult period of starting a company in a difficult financial times is going to make us a better company in the long run. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a challenge, but I think uh, it's a good challenge. Okay. Uh, so basically you are looking for funding, funding or publisher, no, not publisher, more funding, right? No, I mean, not so much anymore. Uh, okay. But it's you know thinking about the period of you know since the beginning of the year and 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 getting there okay. uh, and uh, yeah that's been an adventure let's just let's just say it that yeah way. okay and for you Robin uh, I know you have a lot of challenges that Ubisoft okay. right now <laughs> no but not talking about corporate stuff uh, I think more on a personal point of view uh, in professional but uh, not just personally I'm also recruiting people to join the team. Uh, as we're trying to get the team bigger and bigger, and the Ubisoft Creator programs is, is getting bigger as well. Now we have more than 3,000 creators in the program already, and we're just growing super fast. So we're trying to get more people involved. And the difficulty I have is that a lot of the applicants, they want to be in contact with the creators. And that's not something that we do, really, uh, because if we're at a global position, so it's not our job to contact the French influencers and to pitch them the the projects and to work with them and that kind of stuff. That's the job of the French hub. Uh, and it's sometimes difficult for applicants to understand that although we're based in France, we are the global team and there's a different team that is also based in France that does something that is similar, but not completely similar, you know. Uh, and all of them, they see like influencer marketing at Ubisoft based in France anything that they're going to go see squeezy at the GP Explorer or that kind of stuff, you know, uh, which is not going to happen if you work in my team. <laughs> it's going to happen if you work with the French hub. Uh, but we have a lot of really interesting stuff from a strategic point of view, and we work, we work in a like, global environment, and it's super exciting, but you're not going to be shaking hands with influencers, uh, probably not at least. So, and it's the one thing I'm struggling with, uh, and so we need to be super clear for it not to be you know, deceptive for the applicants. But the one that understand that, that means that they are also super interested in having that global point of view uh, and that they're not getting into influencer marketing to meet with the influencers, 
which is something that you get a lot. People that want to, like they're super fans of someone, so they want to work in the industry because they want to shake hands or go to the after party uh, with those guys. And forget uh, you know, okay, about the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to have professional relationships. It's not only about going to the after party at the bar. Uh, it's mostly all the work that goes before the event that matters. So yeah, but mostly okay. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Okay, well, I think that's a wrap up this uh, first Gozumit. Uh, if you want to just uh, say one message or give your contact info, if you are looking for profiles, for example, if you want to be recruited at Ubisoft, maybe you want Robin's email. Um, and then I will give uh, uh, Julien the opportunity to give his final words and uh, we will uh, wrap up the whole stream. Oh, um, and thank you uh, for inviting me. I think that's really cool also to meet you, Julien. It's great to catch up, Romain. Uh, if yep. anyone wants to contact me, can either contact me on LinkedIn, uh, Romain Ferretti, it's on the screen, or uh, Robin Ferretti at ubisoft.com. Uh, that's my email. And uh, so don't hesitate to shout out, or even if you want just advice on the industry or how to get in, how it is often just to get in. Uh, so don't hesitate. Uh, my DMs are open. Cool. Thank you, Roman. Julien, final word. Final word. Uh, likewise, thanks a lot for for inviting. It was uh, it was really nice to chat, and it was uh, nice to catch up with you, Roman. We used to meet yep. at uh, the various <laughs> events here and there. Uh, I think the last time the last time we saw each other was at the Paris Games Week, but I don't remember which one. It's it's so, a very old one. <laughs> it was ages ago. Uh, so that was uh, that was really nice. Um, we, you know, we're just starting a new studio called Moon River Games. Uh, you can have a look at basically at the briefest description of Game Studio and the game we're making on our website. It's uh, moonrover.games. Um, and, you know, if you want to, um, you know, join the games industry, um, need some advice, some uh, mentoring, uh, or are looking for a job and want to move to Sweden, it's a pretty awesome country. So you want, so long as you can survive the six months of winter, um, you know, have a look. Uh, I, I will take this opportunity to do a shout out to, um, a French uh, nonprofit uh, called uh, Loisirs Numériques that I think has done a lot of good stuff in the in the industry in France. Uh, they have launched an initiative called La Bourse du Jeu Vidéo that helps uh, people get into you know get mentorship and support and kind of young people to get into the games industry. So uh, check them out, support if you can, uh, apply for the uh, scholarship if you need. Uh, I think there's a lot of great organizations that are doing great work and showing like the good uh, in the games industry and not just a big business discussion about ma major like mergers and acquisitions or or new business models. And I think those need uh, to get as much, you know, visibility as possible. Uh, yeah. Cool. Thank you very much, Julien. And on my part, I will thank you very much, everybody, for watching. Uh, either you watched uh, the, the VOD or you are listening also to the podcast because this Meets will be uh, posted as a VOD on YouTube, also on LinkedIn, and uh, as a podcast on Spotify. So thank you very much for this first edition. See you either in two weeks or in a month, depending on uh, 
how many small contents I can create from this smaller, uh, well, not that small because we, we spent uh, nearly two hours uh, together. So see you next time. Bye-bye.